this year, the, the Delta Tom was so impressive. We actually made them check the math four times just to make sure it was accurate. And so it's 24.5% specifically. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a special Thursday edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. That audio clip came from Erica Salmon Byrne, the president of Ethisphere, as she announces the honorees of this year's 2022 World's Most Ethical Company Awards by Ethisphere. In this podcast, we talk about the companies who received the awards, the ethics premium, the ethics quotient, and why this year is so significant. It's a great episode. I know you'll enjoy it. Have you ever thought about the intersection of tax and compliance? Well, I had not until I did a five-part podcast series on Taxman with Tracy Howe. Check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I'm joined by one of my favorite people in compliance, Erica Salmon Byrne. Although compliance really doesn't even begin to uh, touch upon the wide variety of things she's done. She has recently been promoted to president of Ethisphere. So, Erica, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like it wouldn't be March if I wasn't talking to Tom about the world's most ethical companies. And that's exactly why you're here, because Ethisphere today announced the 2022 World's Most Ethical Companies. We're going to go into uh, the actual companies in a little bit of detail in a moment. We have to start with just the most incredible statistic number, wow, whatever word you want to use. And I assure you, I used uh, some very colorful words when I saw it, which is the five-year ethics premium uh, having set it up, could you tell us about it, Erica? Absolutely. It's um, so you know, Tom. Regular listeners of your program will know that this is something Ethisphere has been doing for a while now, where we have a, a a company that does an analysis for us every year when the list is finalized. They will look at the publicly traded companies on the list, and then they will do a backward-looking comparison of those publicly traded companies and their performance over the prior five years. So, sort of from the moment in time that we send them the list a backwards look five years to say, how did they compare to a comparable uh, global index? So they create an index for us and then they compare it to a comparable global index. And this year, the Delta, Tom, was so impressive. We actually made them check the math four times just to make sure it was accurate. And so it's 24%, 24.5% specifically, that the companies, the publicly traded companies on our list this year outperformed a comparable large global index um, by 24.5% over the last five years. And when you see the graph, the thing that stands out to me the most on this is two things. One, everything went up, right? So the comparable global index went up. Um, the companies on our list just went up more. And so uh, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes with your listeners talking a little bit about how we pull the index together, well, or how the company that does it for us pulls the index together, and then also sort of some of the driving pieces that we think underpin this year's outperformance. So on the index itself, um, and this is all publicly available, anybody who's curious about this can go to our website, um, take a look at the index, uh, take a look at the performance for yourself over that five-year period, um, and also get a little bit more information on the company that we work with to do this work for us. But um, one of the things I always want to point out, and I particularly want to point out this year because the performance is so intense, is the, the, the index is weighted. So there is no one company that is in the index that was on the list that is responsible for more than 8% of the performance of the index. So the company we work with caps every company at no more than 8%. So 
you know, we do have a lot of new honorees this year, companies who have not been incorporated into prior analysis in the past, but that impact is muted by the fact that the index, index itself is weighted. So before somebody comes at me on Twitter or LinkedIn and says, well, it's just because you put so-and-so on the list. No, you know, the, the, the index uh, company we work with is really careful about that to make sure that we don't take in, you know, we don't allow the index itself to be unduly weighted by any given piece of information. So that's one, of, one definite thing I wanted to emphasize with your listeners. So why do we think the outperformance is what it is this year? One of the things that really stood out to me, if you look at the chart, is the, the obviously there was a dip, as there was for everybody, in the, at the beginning of the pandemic. But then what we saw is we really saw the companies on this year's list start to outperform from sort of that mid-2020 period forward. And so my hypothesis, Tom, is this. If you look at the methodology that we use to create the world's most ethical companies list, um, it's five categories, as you know well. So um, we look at your ethics and compliance program and practices. Um, 20% of the score is your efforts to measure and support your culture across the organization. 15% um, uh, of your score is your governance activities, so sort of oversight of the organization from an ESG perspective. 20% um, of your score is your involvement with your community and some of your impact-related efforts. And then, of course, there's a component piece of, for reputation. And I want to pick on impact and culture just for a second. So what ended, up, what ended up happening, I think, inside a lot of these organizations in sort of the post-pandemic response period is they really doubled down on their people, right? So if you think about the kinds of things that, ma that matter to the process, it's things like how are you preparing managers to be strong ethical leaders? Um, how are you thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of holding on to your people? Um, how are you thinking about having a strong speak-up culture and what that could look like in a remote or a hybrid environment? And those are the component pieces, to us at least, that go to that sort of long-term commitment to values and outperformance that I at least would argue is completely reflected in the performance of the companies that are, are on this year's list. That is uh, really interesting. So let me see if I can maybe follow up on that a little bit. Uh, around that time, we heard uh, maybe a little bit earlier we heard from the regulators, specifically the Department of Justice, in the update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, that you need not to do a risk assessment annually. You need to do a risk assessment when your risks change. And then they began to, in speeches or other communications, talk about, yes, we're in a pandemic. Yes, the country at that point was still shut down. Your risks have changed. And I certainly uh, tried to articulate that message uh, whether it was simply everyone working from home. And it sounds like companies did that. They assessed their risk, but then they took the next step. They actually saw opportunity to uh, change, uh, grow, and, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to um, reassess the risks they were managing and create, uh, as you said it, I think I got it right, um, or a better people response. So it sounds like kind of all of these factors work together that companies said, yes, things have changed, but we're going to respond in a way that actually makes our culture better and leads us to be a more ethical company. Would that be a fair assessment from your perspective? Yeah, no, I, I think, Tom, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I'll give you one little anecdote um, that I think exemplifies that approach. So, you know, everybody, we hit March of 2020, everybody shuts down, everybody goes home. Um, many of the companies in our community uh, that are on this year's list 
started to look at a couple of key criteria, key things. Um, do we know who, where our people are working from, right? Who might be around from a roommate perspective that, you know, might be able to see information that our folks are working on? What can we do to help people have secure office setups? Um, are they comfortable with our work from home limitations in terms of the systems that we're using so that we can access the, the, the information we need to still continue to do our jobs on behalf of our clients? Once we all understood that we were sort of in those pieces for the long haul, and of course here I'm, I'm thinking particularly about the companies that were able to send most of their workers home, right? Because everybody was in a slightly different set of circumstances, which is again where that risk piece come, becomes so critically important. But I had a conversation about halfway through uh, 2020 with a, a company, um, and the compliance officer told me that because they had turned on click metrics on their written standards and their guidance for employees on how to do their jobs, um, and they had done that in response to some of what had come out from the DOJ uh, in that, that uh, updated evaluation of corporate compliance programs. They had turned on click metrics on their written standards. And so they knew in the fall of 20 that people had stopped accessing things, right? And they were trying to figure out why. And what they realized was they had made it very easy for you to be able to do your job from home. So you could access your email without VPNing in. You could access Teams without VPNing in. But you know what you had to connect to the VPN in order to get your hands on? The policies, the code of conduct, the guidance, the FAQs, the systems that were tied to the compliance and ethics program. And so they ended up transferring key FAQs on some particular you know, risk areas into their team site so that people could still access that guidance even though they were working from home. And I think that's just one small example of using the data you have available to you to pivot in those moments where your risk profile has changed and be able to make sure that your people continuously still have the information they need to do their jobs the way you want them to be doing them. Erica, what did uh, you and Ethisphere see uh, from companies as they move from 2020 into 2021 where things began to open up and we had... Uh, the Delta variant, and then we had Omicron throughout the rest of the year. Uh, how did they uh, continue the momentum that you saw from late 2020? There are a couple of trends that I want to touch on, Tom, that I, I think um, not only are are responding to some of what happened in 21, but I'm, I'm hopeful that there are things that companies are going to hold on to going into to 2022 and beyond. Um, one was uh, a real focus on just-in-time or, or microburst-related learning. So what does it look like to, you know, to do things faster, to do things in shorter form, to do things closer to the moment where somebody needed the information? And this was born out of necessity, right, because we had to pivot a lot of the training work that we have historically done. But I particularly like it because it is related to the way that we know adults learn. So we know that adults have the highest likelihood of holding on to a piece of information if they're able to put it to use within six to eight weeks of learning it, right? So the longer it takes you to actually use a piece of information, the less likely you are, likely you are to hold on to it. So as a compliance professional or as a, a, you know, somebody who is looking at the way that the company is educating its workforce, is there a way to um, provide information in a sort of bite-sized approach? And some of this was necessitated by the fact that all of a sudden we were onboarding people that we couldn't see in person, I personally, you know, at this fair, added a bunch of, of people to the team in, in 2021, um, and I still have members of my team that I've never met in person. Um, they exist in a Zoom box for me. And so, you know, what is it like to onboard them, to, to educate them about the company, the work we do, why we do what we do, how we do it, 
the culture of the organization in that completely remote environment. It was a huge challenge for a lot of companies, but I think they learned a lot about uh, how to do it effectively. And some of it, I hope they will really hold on to because the ability to get information right when you need it is a really critical piece of risk mitigation. So that's thing one. Um, second thing we saw was a tremendous focus on manager training, um, particularly as it pertains to employee well-being. So this was often a partnership between human resources and the ethics and compliance team inside of a lot of organizations, really looking at, you know, how are we making sure that our managers are attuned to indications that an employee is on the edge of burnout? How are we making sure that our managers are listening to diverse employee voices? How are we making sure that they're able to navigate the various burdens that people have on them? And so much of that was put on the, on the backs of managers and the companies that did well were the companies that really thought about how they were equipping those teams to make sure um, that they were, were able to meet the moment. So, um, you know, Tom, as you know well, we've been harping that managers are the linchpin of your culture here at Ethisphere for, for at least four years um, off of the work we do on, on, on measuring culture with organizations. And so I was particularly delighted to see that companies really double down on their manager training over the course of the, the late stages of the pandemic. So could we move now to uh, some of the companies and uh, take a look at those? Uh, what did you, you mentioned, I think that there was a significant number of new companies who came on to the world's most ethical list yep. for 2022. Uh, could you walk us through that? Yeah, so we had, um, I, I think, I'll have to verify this with my team, but I can tell you certainly in my memory, the, the largest amount of turnover on the list. So we have 14 brand new companies on the list this year that have never been recognized by Ethisphere before. Um, they span the gamut. Uh, we are we now have some companies we're recognizing from countries we've never recognized a company from before. Um, you know, it's 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 really been uh, remarkable to see the evolution in company practices and sort of programmatic work and all of the, the advancements over the course of the criteria that we look at. And so, Tom, I'll give you just one example. Um, as you know, because you and I have this conversation annually, um, we have been tracking diversity statistics for a number of years now. And, and for a couple of years running, the, the uh, percentage of board seats that were held by gender diverse uh, directors was very, very stubbornly stuck in the high 20%, right? So it was 27, 26%, 27%, 28%, 28%, 28%. We could never quite break that 30% threshold. And this year, we have 32% of board seats held by gender-diverse directors, which is uh, fantastic news from our perspective. Um, I think some of it is being driven by some of the changes we've seen from the listing uh, uh, organizations. So NASDAQ's rule, for example, I think is one of the driving pieces underneath this. But, um, but we're particularly excited about this, not just because of that 32%, but because of the percentage of honorees that are above that percentage. So we have um, a, we have, I believe it's 18 companies that are at parity. So the, they've got full balanced boards when it comes to a gen from, from a gender perspective. And then we have a majority of entities on the list that are between 30 and 45%. So they're not just hitting that one diverse director um, uh, metric, but they're really going beyond that and looking at the makeup of their board and making sure that the makeup of their board matches the communities that they're serving. So I'm particularly excited about that. I think it, it has, um, it, it bodes very well for the future. So uh, you also mentioned countries. Uh, this is not a, a, mm -hmm. 
a U.S. list only. It's, uh, I believe, 22 different countries across 45 different industries. Could you say a word or two about geographic diversity of the world's most ethical company honorees this year? Um, No, you're you're exactly right on the statistic, Tom. So it's 22 countries this year. Um, And, you know, as I said, there are a couple of of, uh, places where we have not historically had um, companies represented from those particular locations. So a couple of years ago, we had our first Greek company on the list. This year, we have our first Croatian company on the list. We've never had um, a Croatian honoree before. And, you know, for those of your listeners who are listening in and thinking, um, you know, well, it's not really fair to compare a Croatian company to a U.S. listed, you know, large multinational. Um, we include that in the methodology and the review process. So when we actually review companies, we look at you compared to, you know, if we don't have a lot of other applicants from your individual country of origin, um, we look at comparable countries. So, you know, we try to take into consideration the regulatory environment that you might be working in and things along those lines. So we're, we're particularly excited this year to see um, both the diversity of countries and the diversity of industries. Um, we think it really says something about how uh, seriously companies are taking this concept of ESG, this concept of stakeholder capitalism, this idea that well-run companies um, who do the right thing are going to outperform in the long term. And, you know, as you know, Tom, that's been our thesis for uh, since the inception of Ethosphere, and, and we really feel like, you know, this year in particular, we're seeing it borne out. I was wondering if we might conclude with a few words about the ethics quotient. Uh, and uh, this, I don't want to say one thing is more important than the other. Or you love one child more than the other. This, this is one of my <laughs> favorites uh, because uh, yeah. it says so much about not just do you have policies and procedures, do you risk, do you have a, a risk management? It is a holistic look at a variety of different topics, issues, and angles of a company that I find to be incredibly useful really to talk about throughout the year. So could we say a few words about the uh, ethics quotient, what goes into it, and, and how you guys look at it? Absolutely. Um, and, and you know, thank you. It, it is, uh, it's one of my favorite children, without question. Um, I think I'm allowed to say that. So um, the, the ethics quotient itself is the survey that we use for all of the benchmarking work that we do here at Ethosphere, whether you're ready to throw your hat in the ring for world's most ethical companies or not. As Tom mentioned, it's incredibly robust. The full survey is going to run about 210, 212 questions, depending on the skip logic. One of the things I'm particularly excited about, Tom, this year, we have had so many companies say to us, Ethics quotient is great. I I am never going to have time to take the whole thing, right? I'm never going to have time. I'm never going to get the attention of my procurement team to be able to get some of the answers to the questions that you guys ask about third-party diligence. I'm never going to be able to get the attention of my corporate secretary to answer the questions that you guys ask about corporate governance. Well, on the one hand, I'm sorry to hear that because we deliberately designed the survey so that it's cross-functional to make sure that there are those relationships working inside your organization where you are sharing information and collaborating with your sister control functions. But we acknowledge that that's where a lot of organizations are. And so this year, for the first time, a company that is interested in taking um, Ethosphere's favorite questions is going to be able to do that. So we are going to create or have created and will be offering to our community what we are calling the essentials version of the EQ. So it's basically um, the questions that we believe a compliance officer worth her salt will be able to pour a cup of coffee, block, block an hour on her calendar, and sit down and answer without asking anybody for help. 
And then that opens up the door to being able to benchmark those answers. So we're really, really excited about this. You know, it is very hard to choose our favorite questions, but we worked really hard to make sure that we choose we chose our favorite questions for that version of the EQ. Um, we also, just another thing to make sure your listeners are aware of, we update the survey every year. So we are continuously tracking regulatory guidance. We're continuously tracking company changes. We're uh, monitoring the feedback we get from, from applicants who say, hey, we didn't understand what you meant by this question, or this question was worded weirdly for us, you know, can you provide some clarifying details? And so that's the reason why we send the survey every year through an annual update process, and that update process will start at the end of April this year, um, and we will be working with our methodology committee and, you know, reviewing all the regulatory guidance this year, we're looking hard at um, ISA 37301 as, you know, a, a something that is, is kind of newer uh, out there that we'll be making sure that we cover appropriately. And then, of course, if the Department of Justice comes out with anything, we're looking at some of the um, deferred prosecution agreements that are coming out of OFAC. Anyway, there's lots and lots of things going on, and all of that gets uh, fed into the, the EQ revision process, um, which will be a big part of the team's work over the course of the next couple of months. I've said this before, and I'll say it again, Erica. The reason I love the uh, ethics quotient so much is uh, that you, you and Ethisphere are very open about it, and even the information that you have made available publicly on the website about 2022 World's Most Ethicals, it's got that information, and it's incredibly useful for everyone to use. And if there's ever a uh, an example of a rising tide raises all boats, uh, I think the ethics quotient is it. Uh, I can't really talk enough about it. But I'm going to quit talking about it because we're going to end our podcast going back <laughs> to the ethics premium. And we're going to talk about that one more time. Uh, if yep. uh, And I will start off by telling the same story I tell every year, which was in 2008, the first time I was made aware of the world's most ethical companies. There was an ethics premium of 4.5%. And I thought, we have hit it. We This is it. We will, uh, we, th- if companies <laughs> don't understand it, you know, they get it now. 4.5% difference uh, with the large cap comparisons. And now we have over 24%. If that's not a message that drives home the ROI of compliance and ethics, I don't know what is. But the other point I'd like to perhaps suggest is the compounding nature of this. Those companies that had 4.5% in 2008, if they have stayed on this path, they are probably much more yeah. ahead. You have a five-year retrospect here, and uh, I would just urge people to think about the power in these numbers and the power that uh, it demonstrates that you can make a difference, but you can make a difference every year. So um, I've said my piece. You want to say a few last words about the ethics premium and why this year uh, just literally blew us all away? Yeah, it really did blow us all away, Tom. There's there's no question about it. And and I think you know I th- I think the 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 point that I would emphasize for your listeners is this: we now live in a world where seventy percent, on average, of a company's uh, asset value is intangible. Right? It's their IP, it's their brand, it's their people. Right? Um, we are no longer living in a world where the bulk of your assets are widgets. We are living in a world where the bulk of your assets are things that require people to protect them and to grow them and to and to honor them, if I'm allowed to use that language, right? There's um and and that's really what we try to get at with the world's most ethical companies is the way in which you have created a work environment where people are 
um, careful with the company's confidential information, aware of the risks the organization is presented with, trying to select business partners that share your values, and creating an environment where at the end of the day, everybody gets to bring their whole self to work. And I firmly believe that if we all do that, the world really will be a better place. Erica, that's a great place uh, for us to end. We're going to link to the information on the 2022 honorees of the World's Most Ethical Awards and the information we've talked about in this podcast. I wanted to uh, thank you and Ethisphere again for this year's honorees and taking the time to visit with us on this uh, great information. Absolutely, Tom. My pleasure. This is Tom Fox of Hope. You've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I also hope you will check out a special five-part podcast series I'm running on the Innovation and Compliance podcast on Taxman, the intersection of tax and compliance. I visit with tax expert Tracy Howe on a variety of topics in this podcast series, including why tax should talk to compliance, why tax needs a seat at the table during contract negotiations, what is transfer pricing, tax and supply chain, and the role of tax in ESG. It's a topic that most compliance officers really don't spend enough time thinking about and working with the corporate tax function. I know you will find it incredibly useful. Thanks again for listening to the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join us again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.